0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. We're in a continuing our series, or heading towards the finish line, but continuing in our series in First John. Today's part 14. We're going to look at the beginning of chapter 4 today uh, on testing the spirits and waging spiritual war. Because the truth is, there is a spiritual world all around us. Uh, in Second Kings 6, we read a story about Elisha. Some of you say Elisha, but I say Elisha, <laughs> uh, who's called here uh, the man of God. So turn with me to 2 Kings 6, beginning in verse 8. Once when the king of Aram, king of Syria, was warring against Israel, he took counsel with, with his officers, saying, at such and such a place will be my camp, but the man of God... Elisha sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place, for the Syrians are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he saved himself from such places more than once or twice. So the context here is the king of Syria wants to make is making these plans uh, of his war against Israel, uh, but God would reveal these plans to Elisha and Elisha would then tell the king of Israel, uh, verse 11, 2 Kings six eleven. This enraged the king of Syria. Uh, he summoned his officers, demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? He thought he had a traitor. He thought he had a spy in, in their midst. Uh, verse 12, 2 Kings 6, 12. None of us, my lord, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, He tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. The king's advisor said, it's not not us, you know, it's Elisha. Verse 13, go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he's at Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord. Oh, what shall we do? The servant asked. So Elisha's servant, here he's panicking here. Uh, uh, He wakes up Elisha. What are we going to do? There's a whole army surrounding us. Verse 16. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Hallelujah. Now, put yourself in the servant's shoes. What must he be thinking? He can count. Uh, There's only two of them. One, two. (laughs) And they're surrounded by this huge army with horses and chariots, or chariots with uh, the tanks uh, of their day. He's probably thinking, Elisha has lost his mind. Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. So so the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and behold, he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Lord opened the servant's eyes to see the spiritual army surrounding and protecting them. The veil is is temporarily lifted, uh, and the servant is given a glimpse into the unseen world. And it totally changes his perspective. He realized that the army of Syria is indeed outnumbered. Because in that moment, the invisible becomes visible. Verse 18. As the enemy came down toward toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road. This is not the city. These are not your droids. <laughs> Follow me and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them uh, to, Samar- to Samaria. So Elisha, he leads the entire Syrian army straight to the king of Israel and then in- Samaria. And there they're immediately captured. Uh, so here's the point. There's a lot going on around us that we don't see. Uh, on, the- on the overhead, please. There's a spiritual, invisible world around us that's just as real if not more real than the visible world and far more powerful. The Bible teaches that there's a vast number of angels, both good and bad spirits that exist all around you. Uh, There are glorious beings that I believe are here right now with us that would take your breath away if you could see them. And there are evil beings in this world that would horrify you if you could see them. And to most people in the world, Talk like this sounds crazy, like this rabbi has crazy talk. <laughs> because we live in a rationalistic, naturalistic, w- w- Western mindset uh, that explains everything solely by what you can perceive with your five senses. We live in a secular, scientific, technological society. So to say that you believe in angels and demons and spirits, well, that's like saying that you believe in dragons and, and orcs uh, and elves. <laughs> in our world, if you can't see it, touch it, hear it, taste it, smell it, it doesn't exist. So secular people, uh, they'll mock us with with these fake straw man arguments like, how can you believe in a supernatural God who controls thunder and lightning when meteorologists, they can use satellite imagery and computers to predict storms weeks in advance? Or they'll say something like, how can you say that there's a spiritual tempter uh, engaging our wills in a battle of good and evil? Uh, When we now know it's just the configuration of our DNA or our family history uh, that leads us down certain paths. Our secular worldview has deadened us to the reality of the spiritual world. And so secular people see spiritual explanations of anything as total religious fantasy. Uh, In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, at one point the elder demon says to the younger demon, put the overhead please, He says, I don't think you'll have much difficulty keeping the patient, i.e. the human, in the dark. The fact that devils are mostly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights uh, and persuade him that because he can't believe in that, he can't believe in you. Because we live in a secular age, we're programmed to view spiritual explanations of events uh, as at the very least uncommon uh, and most typically just as weird. So maybe there's an unseen spiritual, supernatural spiritual stuff that's happening. But we say it's happening only in some third world country, uh, but not in everyday uh, middle class American life. Uh, And then sadly, to make it even worse, we take the same mindset with ourselves overseas when we send missionaries to do missions. And typically, a missionary will tell the native people uh, that their crops growing have nothing to do with spiritual realities, but only with science, right? So there's fertilizers and fungicides and pesticides and hybrid seed. Spiritual And spiritual reality has nothing to do with agriculture. It's just science. Now, to be clear, Science is obviously involved. But what the missionary should have said is that this, there is a supernaturally God-created, God-sustained world. And God has enabled us to learn how to put the right things together in accordance with how he created them. And when we do this, our supernatural God gives us good crops. Science is simply our natural observation of how a supernatural God has made our world. And all this scientific order is maintained by his great sustaining power. So the fruit we see in science is ultimately the work of Almighty God. But that's not how we think, is it? Uh, because we don't see spiritual realities, uh, that, that ov- the, 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 these realities that oversee uh, and undergird and infiltrate everything. We don't see it. But this is what the Bible teaches us from from beginning to end. Just look at Genesis 3. Spiritual temptation leads to physically eating a piece of fruit. Look at Matthew 4, beginning of Yeshua's ministry. Uh, He's led by the Holy Spirit himself into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The entire book of Revelation gives gives a clear spiritual explanation to the working out of physical reality. This theme is throughout the scriptures. So if you don't believe in the invisible spiritual world, you are rejecting the word of God. Yeshua certainly believed in a spiritual world. Uh, His conception was announced by an angel, uh, as was his birth. He he was tempted by the devil. Uh, He cast out demons. He he was ministered to by angels. He could have appealed to legions of angels at at the cross. Angels were present at his tomb and resurrection and at at his ascension. The spiritual world is real. But if we're honest, most, most of us don't think too much about it. So imagine you're, you're in a heated argument with someone. Now suddenly a significant person whom you greatly respect walks into the room. Do you change your demeanor? Probably so. But the question is this. Why didn't you change your demeanor before then in light of the fact that the Holy Spirit was there with you all along? Here's why. It's because the physical is far more real to you and me than the spiritual. Think about what's happening right now, right here. We're not gathering together today just to study some book, right, on the overhead. This book, the Bible, is the voice of God speaking to you. This is the supernatural word of God saying to you that there is a real spiritual world all around you, which means we are all involved in spiritual war all the time look at ephesians 6 verse 12 very famous verse we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers uh, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places and this is where you need to see the all-encompassing nature of spiritual warfare it touches every area of your life it touches your marriage your family Your relationships, our congregation, your work, your school, your neighborhood, your community. There is no part of your life or this world over which the adversary does not try to influence you. So you need to see the conflict between the true God over this world uh, and the false God of this world. The conflict is raging every single day over how you live, over how you spend your time. Uh, how you use your money, what you look at on your phone and your computer, uh, how you raise your kids, the tone of voice you use with your spouse, what you do when you think that no one is watching. In every single aspect of your life, at every moment, there's the little G God of this world set up against the capital G God over this world. And the little G God of this world wants to wreck your marriage wants to wreck your kids, uh, wants to destroy your relationships uh, and steal your purity uh, and compromise your integrity, and at all costs wants to prevent you from spreading the good news of eternal life in Yeshua the Messiah to those who are on a road leading to eternal death. Whether you want it or not, you have been born into a war and are involved in intense spiritual war all the time. Let's look at how the Bible talks about our lives. Uh, Hebrews twelve, a constant struggle against sin. First uh, Peter two, a war against our souls. Jude three, contending for the faith. Uh, Philippians one, struggling for the gospel. First uh, Timothy six, fighting the good fight of faith. This is just does a very small sampling of how the Bible describes your everyday lives. We tend to think of spiritual warfare. Uh, that This only occurs when something out of the ordinary is going on. But the reality is your involvement in this spiritual war began the day you were born. You cannot ignore this war. The Bible doesn't say ignore the devil and he'll flee from you. No. For James 4, verse 7, uh, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. If you try to avoid or deny this war. If you sit back in a lazy, lackadaisical, comfortable, cultural Yeshua faith, pretending there's no struggle to be had or war to be fought, you will not stand. You will waver. You will falter. You will fall. Because the enemy in this spiritual war is strong. And with this, with this background information, let's now turn to our passage, First John chapter 4. And you're going to see that John assumes that this whole spiritual world, that what we just saw. He asserts a spiritual a world and a spiritual war. So First John 4, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Yeshua the Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Yeshua uh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the anti-messiah, which you've heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Little children, you're from God, and you've overcome them because he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. They are from the world, and therefore speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Did you hear that? This passage is talking about spirits that are not from God. And in particular, the spirit of the anti-Messiah. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. It tells us, Now the spirit expressly says that in the last times, some will depart from the faith. How? by devoting themselves to deceitful spirit and the teachings of demons. The word of God is clear. There are spirits which come from the Lord and spirits which come from the devil. And our enemy in this spiritual war is pervasive. verse John 4, 1, expressly says, many, many false prophets, next verse, many false prophets have gone out in, in, into the world. Uh, no, you back one, I'm sorry. Now, a few... Uh, not a few random outliers, but many false prophets have gone out into the world. They're everywhere. There are many false teachers in the world today, and by the way, they are proliferating on the internet. <laughs> uh, and sadly, this includes many who claim to be followers of Yeshua. That's why you're told test the spirits, because our enemy is deceptive. He doesn't appear in red tights uh, and ho- and horns and a pitchfork. No. <laughs> The Bible says he can make himself appear as an angel of light. The devil comes in attractive garb to tempt you. Genesis 3, verse 6. We're told, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. There are all kinds of things in this world that look good but will steal you away from God. Which is why the scriptures are filled with warnings against false prophets. Yeshua says in Matthew seven fifteen, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inside they're ravenous wolves. Paul warns us uh, in Ephesians four fourteen. No longer be infants tossed to and fro by the waves, uh, blown here and there by every wind of doctrine, and by the cunning craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Ephesians five verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And in Acts 20 to verse 29, Paul warns that fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw, to draw away the disciples after them. John is here likewise warning us here in 1 John 4 verse 1 to test every spirit to see whether or not they are from God because our enemy is strong uh, and pervasive and deceptive. And he's equally happy with us not acknowledging his existence and also the other extreme, obsessing over him. Uh, on the overhead, C.S. Lewis says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve uh, their existence. The other is to believe but to feel an unhealthy and obsessive interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. So, number one, we can be tempted to ignore uh, the spiritual and live functionally as uh, materialistic, naturalistic lives. Or two, we can be tempted to go way out of whack at how we excessively think about the spiritual, seeing a demon under every rock. To be blunt... There's a lot of fiction and fantasy and non-scriptural speculation and superstition and nonsense and nuttiness and false teaching uh, uh, on spiritual warfare uh, and deliverance ministries that's thriving today in the body of Messiah. There's a lot of crazy stuff out there. David Powlison wrote a powerful book on counseling as it relates to spiritual warfare. He describes some of the truly amazing um, excesses that he's seen out there. So on the overhead, here's an excerpt from his book. Uh, Cynthia, a woman I counseled, once cast demons out of her toaster when it burnt her toast. (laughs) She and her husband, Andrew, had a remarkably destructive way of arguing with each other. For the first five minutes, they they warmed up with normal person-to-person bickering. But at a certain point, when the fight turned nasty they shifted gears and wheeled in the heavy artillery. They would bind, rebuke, and attempt to cast out demons of anger, pride, and self-righteousness from each other. In Cynthia's words, I saw the demon looking out of his eyes, glittering and murderous. So I said, demon of anger, I bind you with the power of Yeshua's name. Then I claimed the power of Yeshua's blood as my covering over all the demonic assaults that were coming through my husband. (laughs) As a result, not only did Cynthia and Andrew reinforce their hostility, but they trampled the name of Messiah through the mud of all, with all their superstition and hostility and fear and confusion. Needless to say, the real devil, whose aim is to dishonor God and to conform us to his evil ways, he can only be pleased at the personal and interpersonal wreckage that he brought about in this situation. recommend this book, Power Encounters, Reclaiming Spiritual Warfare. Where do do you ever see people in the Bible binding demons? You don't. To bind and to loose were Hebraic terms used in discussing halacha, meaning uh, to forbid and permit. This is when a rabbi would forbid or permit a particular practice. It had nothing to do with spiritual warfare. When Yeshua tells his disciples, Matthew 18, 18, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He was giving them authority to make rulings for the Messianic believers. In fact, he was giving them this halakhic authority. Uh, this halakhic authority, he was giving it to his disciples and not the rabbis. Yeshua was taking away this decision-making authority from the rabbis and transferring it to his disciples. And especially here in the context of Matthew 18, in dealing with congregational life and government and congregational discipline. But this verse has been misinterpreted by believers to be about binding demons. But here's what First John does say about spiritual warfare. He says, our weapons in Messiah are far stronger than the devil. And, uh, and so you will not be defeated if you, if you simply do these things. Number one, you test the spirits. For again, First John 4, one, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. There are spirits from God and there are spirits from the devil. And you need to know the difference. You must test. Uh, by the way, this word to test uh, in the Bible uh, is used to also used to determine the purity of a metal. To, and to examine something to find out its quality. Uh, and, and again, where does it come from? Is it from God or not? The word of God is clear. Do not believe every spirit. It says everything you see, everything you read, everything you hear, By the way, that also includes everything I say as well. Test every preacher that you hear, every book that you read, uh, uh, every internet teacher that you listen to. Test it all. Because it's either from God or from the devil. So be good Bereans. Test everything. That's why Paul tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Preach the word. For the time will come and people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, They'll accumulate teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. We are all prone to want to listen only to what we want to hear and to turn a deaf ear to that which we don't like. We listen to what we already agree with and suits our preferences and passions and lifestyles. Even if it means ignoring or dismissing the truth. In 1 Kings, we read about King Ahab surrounding himself with lying prophets who told him only what he wanted to hear, even when it eventually would lead to his death. And isn't this what many of us in the body of Messiah do today? If you go to YouTube or iTunes or turn on Christian TV, you'll quickly see that we seek out teachers who tell us what we want to hear. Teachers who make us feel good about our own idolatry or our materialism. A sex, comfort, safety, political correctness, and especially ourselves. All the while calling it messianic faith or Yeshua faith, even when it does not square with the word of God. You must test everything you hear, everything you read, everything you think. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, what are these strongholds? Next verse. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to the obedience of Messiah on the overhead. So according to these verses, where does spiritual warfare happen? It happens in your mind. Because it's in your mind where arguments are made and opinions are raised and thoughts take place against the word of God. So how do you fight spiritual warfare? By taking every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah. This is the essence of spiritual warfare. Examining and taking control of your thought life. Everything you allow yourself to think and to meditate on and to dwell on. I had a conversation with someone just recently who said, I feel so ashamed of my sin. I don't know how God can forgive me, how he can love me. I don't think he can forgive me. So I said, okay, stop. Wait a minute. Let's take that thought, and now ask yourself, is that thought from God? Where does God say he doesn't love you or he won't forgive you? That thought is not from God. It's from the devil. So do not entertain it. Do not accept it. This is an example, of a very easy, clear example of spiritual warfare, because it's primarily focused on your mind taking every thought captive to Messiah. That's why, that's why we're told in Romans 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Here's another example from, recently happened. brother comes up to me. He wants prayer about uh, lustful thoughts he's struggling with. So I ask him, are you viewing pornography? Yes, he says. So I told him, your mind will focus on what you feed it. If you're viewing porn, do not be surprised by having lustful thoughts. Like, hello. (laughs) That's what we're told in Philippians 4, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Spiritual warfare begins in your mind. And it's happening all the time in our lives in all kinds of ways. Think of Adam and Eve. Their sin started way before they actually ate the fruit. It started in their minds. They believed the lie of the devil that God did not have their best interest at heart, that God was trying to hold them down. Uh, So they began to think, maybe God isn't right. Maybe the fruit of this tree is good for me. Maybe I won't die. Maybe it'll make me wise. Maybe I know better than God. That's where the battle was lost. Spiritual warfare begins in your mind. And it requires us to test everything we hear, everything you see, everything you read, everything you think, and ask, is this from you, Lord? And in particular, is it consistent with your word? and consistent with the central truth of who Yeshua the Messiah is. The only Son of God, God manifest in the flesh. First John 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua the Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. John is warning us here about those who deny the Incarnation. That Yeshua came from heaven and took on human flesh. Interestingly, Second Temple Judaism, believe it or not, actually did not have a problem with this doctrine. For example, the Jewish sages they looked at passages like Daniel seven, and what did they see? They saw two manifestations of Yudhevavhe, one of which had a human form. In fact, they even had a name for this. They called it the Two Powers theology and it was widely accepted in Second Temple Judaism. So we read in Daniel 7, verse 9, I looked and thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, the the Ancient of Days, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. So here here we have the Lord on his throne. But notice the text says, I looked and thrones, plural, were set up in heaven. And then we read this, Daniel 7, verse 13. Then I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So seated here with the Ancient of Days, picture this, Uh, On a, on a, a, a throne in heaven, a second throne in heaven, is this second figure called the Son of Man, which Hebraically means somebody in human form. He comes with the clouds, which, by the way, is a phrase used only for God. We see 70 times in the Tanakh, one coming on the clouds. And each and every single time it refers to God. And the son of, son, now the Son of Man coming on the clouds is given divine authority uh, and glory and power, and all nations worship him, which, of course, is a practice reserved only for God. And, and his reign is eternal. And the rabbis looked, and they saw this second figure as another, representative, another separate manifestation of yud heh of the Lord God, equally divine. And again, they referred to this as the two powers in heaven theology. Indeed, the Talmud itself, in Tractate Hagiga, it's recorded that no one less than Rabbi Akiva himself saw this figure uh, uh, on the second figure on the second throne, he says, as David HaMelech, David HaMelech, uh, King David, or, or the son of David, uh, the Messiah. But note what Rabbi Akiva is seeing. He says, you've got David seated in heaven next to the Ancient of Days, making him equally divine, but David... David HaMelech is also human. He's a son of man. He's human. And according to the Talmud, you have this divine figure in the form of a man. And of course, we know Yeshua identified himself uh, as this divine son of man. So the ancient rabbis had no problem with this concept of the incarnation, of God taking on human form in order to save humans. It was very Jewish. It's only later on in reaction against Yeshua faith, that later rabbis came out against this concept of the incarnation as being Jewish. But John expressly warns us against anyone denying the incarnation, against denying that Yeshua has come in the flesh on the overhead. So it's all about Yeshua. Hear me well. Everything in your life, now and forever, hinges on how you view Yeshua. Yeshua. Everything hinges on this, your life, your marriage, your parenting, your teenage years, uh, your school, your relationships, uh, your dating and courtship, uh, your work, your spending, your emotions, your thoughts, your plans, your dreams. Everything in your life hinges on you having a right view of Yeshua. It hinges on you understanding that he he is fully human and fully divine. That he's come in the flesh. That he's the Messiah. The Lord come in the flesh in the incarnation. And that he's died for your sins and risen again on the third day. And that he is returning to judge the earth. Now, by the way, lots of people deny all this. Islam expressly denies that Yeshua is God come in the flesh. So do the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. So do lots of liberal Protestant groups uh, and modern-day rabbinic Judaism. And even some so-called Hebrew roots groups deny uh, the deity of of Messiah. But John is very clear here. These teachings, denying who Yeshua is, are not from God. Rather, they're from a spirit who's against Messiah. He calls it the spirit of the anti-Messiah or the Antichrist. 1 John 4, verse 3. This is the spirit of the anti-Messiah which you've heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So John exhorts us to trust the truth about Yeshua, that he's fully human and fully God, that he alone is able to save you from your sins. The scriptures strongly preach against any religious system that says you can earn your way to heaven, or that human effort contributes to your salvation, or that you need a combination of faith and works as in Catholicism. This, these teachings are not from God. Any religious system that says Yeshua's death on the cross alone is not sufficient to atone for your sins. That teaching is not from God. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Yes, your works are key. In that they're evidence of having true saving faith. But they are not what saves you. But if you do have truth, saving, saving faith, the spirit of Messiah now lives within you and you're a new creation, which means you've been reborn. You've been regenerated and your life will be transformed. Second Corinthians 517. If anyone's in Messiah, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. So Yeshua alone is able to save you from your sins and to give you this new birth to write his word on your heart, to take away your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, a new heart, soft and pliable towards him. Yeshua alone must rule as Lord of your life. And he doesn't just cleanse you of your sins, if that wasn't enough. He also changes your life. So you begin to walk as he walked and love as he loves. And you lay down your life for others as he did for you. So again, again, On the overhead, hear me well, everything in your life, now and forever, hinges on how you view and relate to Yeshua. And if you reject who he is and what he's done for you, you are on a road that leads to eternal separation from the Lord. And if you reject God's provision through repenting and trusting in Yeshua alone, you will never experience any assurance of your salvation because you've made it dependent on you in your sinfulness instead of on Yeshua in his righteousness. And if you don't believe Yeshua alone rules as Lord over your life, uh, then you will date and do marriage the way you want to, uh, and parenting the way you want to, and school and work the way you want to, and spend your money and live your life the way you want to, and you will miss the wonder and joy and love of a life completely submitted to his lordship of Yeshua everything in your life today and forever hinges on how you view Yeshua is he just a man to you is he a good teacher or is he the divine Messiah fully God and fully man come to save and rescue and redeem and transform and regenerate you is he the only savior of your sin and the Lord of your life If so, this truth did not come to you from the world. It came to you from God. His spirit revealing himself to you, to which you must now respond. So in this spiritual war, if you are a Yeshua follower, you can trust the power of God's spirit within you, dwelling within you. Right now, you are not powerless. You have the power of the spirit of God within you. John 4, 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome the spirit of the anti Why? Because the one in you is greater than the one who's in the world. So trust in the power of God's spirit and in the word that God has spoken. In the last two verses of our passage, John compares the false teachers with the true teachers uh, who are speaking the word of God, the true teachers. And when John opens verse 6 with uh, the word we... Most biblical scholars believe he's referring to both himself and the other apostolic eyewitnesses of Yeshua's life and death and resurrection who are testing to the truth of the gospel. So, how do you test the spirits? By the word the Lord has spoken to you, by the scriptures, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. You must test everything by the scriptures. And if I, again, if I say anything contrary to what's written in the scriptures, do not believe me. Test everything you hear, everything you read, everything you think by the word of God. Not the Apocrypha, not the book of Enoch or the book of Jasher uh, or the Talmud or the Zohar or any other book, but by the Bible alone. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6 is our one offensive weapon in our spiritual warfare? Ephesians 6, verse 11 and verse 17. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And don't forget that cults and false teachings come from people who claim to have additional words from God. But the scriptures are sufficient. Our enemy in this spiritual war is powerful and pervasive and deceptive. But your weapons are greater still. So so we trust in Yeshua, of who he is and what he's done. We trust in the power and the presence and the indwelling of his spirit. And we trust in the infallible, inerrant word of God. And we trust in the knowledge that the ultimate outcome of this spiritual war is certain and and, and preordained. (laughs) The Lord's complete victory. And the enemy's complete defeat. And so in this spiritual war, you are not struggling to somehow win. Because Yeshua has already won Colossians 2:15, and Yeshua, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle, an open show of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, you are not fighting for victory. you are fighting from victory. And because of the gospel, because of Yeshua's victory over sin and death and hell and the grave and Satan, you now have a whole new approach to spiritual warfare. Because the enemy's already been defeated. And he will ultimately be destroyed. So again, as Messianic believers, we are not fighting for victory, but from victory. Just like, just like Elisha's servant in Second Kings 6 with the chariots of fire. God is saying to you today, open your eyes. Open your eyes to the spiritual reality all around you. And open your, your eyes within as well, First John 4, 4, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So Ez Chaim, you are in a spiritual war. We are in a spiritual war every day, at, at, in your home, at your school, at work, in your every word, uh, your, your every desire, your every thought. So in this war, my holy brothers and sisters of Ezchaim Chaim, trust in the truth about Yeshua. Trust in the power of God's Spirit and trust in God's Word and know that this week, in all of your battles with temptation and all your struggles with sin, you're not fighting for victory because if you are in Messiah Yeshua, you are are fighting from victory. And we know the end of this war is already set. Look at Revelation 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah has come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him how? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives, even unto death. Yeshua is soon returning. And he will hurl the adversary and all his deceptions before us and all of his accusations against us into the abyss. And you and I are going to live with the one true supernatural God. Hallelujah. Free from all sin and all suffering and all death for all eternity. Hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah. It, it is wartime now, but peacetime is coming. So fight the good faith. As we read in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the author and finisher of your faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, uh, uh, scorning its shame. And he sat down, by the way, just like he picked it of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. That's that and pray. Hallelujah. The music team to come on up. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, Father, we thank you today for revealing to us there's a whole unseen spiritual world around us. And that we are in a life and death spiritual war a war for our souls and the souls of our loved ones. You tell us there are demonic and angelic spirits in this world and that we must test the spirits. Your word tells us in the last days that many will depart from your truth and devote themselves to deceitful spirits and and teachings of demons. So, Lord, help us to test everything we see and read and everything we think. For spiritual warfare, Lord, centers ultimately on that, what we think, on our minds. That's why you command us, Lord, to pull down spiritual strongholds by destroying arguments and every opinion raised against you and to take, thought, take captive every thought to the obedience of you, Messiah. So, Lord Yeshua, help us today to examine and take control of our thought life, everything we think and meditate and, and dwell on. Help us, Lord, to submit it all to you. You tell us in your word, every spirit that confesses that you, Yeshua, have, have come in the flesh is from God. Lord Yeshua, we confess today your incarnation, that you are our God come in the flesh. Help us, Lord, to see how how Jewish this is, that Judaism believed in a divine Messiah, incarnated in the flesh as a human being, the divine son of man from Daniel. And only later did our Jewish leaders distance themselves from this view. Lord Yeshua, we know everything in our life hinges on how we view you, And so, Lord, we confess that you are God come in the flesh, incarnated as a human in order to save humans. And we pray this all in your name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.